Welcome to TalkErie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie, PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. Dr. Jack Rozell, he is an associate professor of psychiatry, adjunct professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, uh, Dr. Rozell, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us here on, on the uh, I-9, uh, I-79 Zoom stretch here, and we appreciate uh, you coming on the show. Hey, happy to be here, Joel. Thanks for inviting me. All righty. So uh, we're a family show. We like to get origin stories. Uh, how did you come up in uh, in your field? And uh, is Pittsburgh kind of hometown or did you transplant in? <laughs> I, I consider myself a transplant now. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Connecticut. I uh, did my undergrad in, in med school in Rhode Island. Um, came to Pittsburgh originally in 99 for residency, which is the, the training we do to specialize in different areas. In my case, psychiatry, child psychiatry, and forensic psychiatry. I came here in Pittsburgh for that uh, back in 99, uh, left to Rochester, New York for a few years, but I've been back since 2010 as the medical director of a program called Resolve Crisis Services. Oh, can you tell us a little bit about your program down there? Sure. So we are part of uh, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and we provide crisis services for the greater Pittsburgh region. Uh, very much in the same way that your safe harbor team does for, for Erie County. Um, in fact, we work very closely with them. I probably had two phone calls with their folks today. Um, but, uh, you know, at this point, I spent about half of my life doing emergency mental health stuff and about half of my life doing violence and violence prevention stuff. You know, and as far as the, the origin story of that, um, you know, I'll tell you, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Connecticut. Uh, didn't come from a gun owning family, didn't come from a high gun ownership community and, you know, wasn't necessarily around it a lot. You know, I had one friend, uh, his dad, uh, had the, the old family, you know, hunting shotgun over the mantle. And, uh, let me say, Mr. C would whoop you even if you weren't his kid. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I wasn't reaching for that anytime soon. Right? Yeah. But, uh, then I hit med school and trauma surgery yeah, and started seeing a lot of gunshot wounds and realizing, you know what, gunshot wounds are pretty tough to treat. And then in residency, I had the opportunity to start doing coursework at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law and uh, found out about the Second Amendment and uh, that the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment and have spent a lot of my life since then trying to, to reconcile how do we how do we reduce firearm injuries and, and sort of promote safer communities um, while respecting the, the very real parameters of the federal constitution, the state constitution, the laws and the, the interpretations thereof from the courts? And how do we do it in a way that, that's actually helpful to, to the patients and the families uh, that I and my colleagues go out and meet with every single day? I, I want to jump in by kind of getting an idea of the moment in time where we live right now. And again, uh, we've had a very horrific uh, several weeks here. If you go, uh, you know, back uh, to uh, suburban Chicago, a little bit further back to Uvalde, Texas, a little further back to Buffalo, New York, uh, throw Tulsa, Oklahoma in there and countless other places. It has just been one mass shooting, one major gun violence incident after another what are your thoughts of where we're at as a as a as as a psyche of America when it comes to this subject? Well, 
you know, if you go back to the history books, um, Roger Bannister was the first guy to run a, a four-minute mile. And before he had done it, people were keeping records saying, how fast could people run? And said, oh, no one could possibly break the, the, that barrier. They right? thought his heart would burst. Yes, right? <laughs> right. And uh, lo and behold, Bannister beats that four-minute mile. And then I think he beats his own record. And then a couple other people beat his record, you know, all within just a span of a couple months, right? And in America, we've got a lot of factors going on, but at least one of them is for some people, uh, they latch onto this idea of, hey, maybe I could be like that person who was in the news, that person who, who uh, sort of dominated the news cycle for some period of time. But at the same time, while some of these truly awful, tragic events do dominate the news cycle, um, and while we do have some reasonable evidence that says they're getting a little bit more frequent, maybe a little bit more severe o- over the past years, um, the reality is is that it counts for maybe 1% or 2% of the firearm homicides that happen in our country. And by our most recent data, uh, most of, of the firearm deaths uh, in the United States are suicides. Uh, about 56 to 60% of our uh, firearm deaths are suicides. And uh, about 40 to 45 percent of them right now are homicides. Uh, and the mass shootings, again, are dreadful, uh, but account for only a, a very small percentage of the overall firearm homicides. And, 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 and to get to understand your perspective as a physician, you want to stop or you want to reduce all GSWs, all gunshot yeah. wounds. Yeah, it, it doesn't not necessarily. I mean, again. Not necessarily where that that shot is coming from, but can we just bring the whole uh, the whole census down, if you will? Absolutely, absolutely. You All know, right, yeah, go ahead. I say, when we look at firearm deaths in America, we have about forty five thousand firearm deaths uh, in the United States every year. Um, when we look at firearm injuries, we have eh. We have a very rough guess because we don't have great data on it, but probably between 75,000 to 150,000 firearm injuries every year. Uh, and when you look at sort of national comparisons to other economically developed countries, uh, we're the leaders in this, right? You know, 85% of all firearm uh, homicides uh, in the world, uh, or at least the economically developed world, happen in the United States. More than 90% of women and children who are murdered with firearms are American women and children. And it's reasonable to say, hey, what's happening in the U.S. that's distinct? Uh, But also, again, recognizing that we have some some barriers, uh, or maybe not barriers, but we have some parameters that we have to work with them about uh, how we improve safety in our communities. It it was crazy to hear about uh, the former prime minister of Japan, uh, Abe, you know, a firearm death. There was only one in Japan all of last year. and, And like he's like the only one this year so far or something like that, you know. And, you know, in a lot of our uh, metropolitan emergency departments that, you know, every shift. Right. Yeah. Um, So even in Erie, unfortunately. All right. In 2017, uh, you indicated in your research that firearm homicide rates had actually decreased despite widespread perceptions to the contrary. Five years later, is that still the case? Unfortunately, it is not, uh, you know, and it, th- that was sort of right around the inflection point when homicide rates started to increase again uh, in the United States. And they've gone up. And in fact, um, in the last year or two that, that we have numbers for, they've gone up more sharply than we've seen 
probably in, in the past 50 or 60 years. Now, to be clear, we're still nowhere near the peaks of firearm homicides and homicides in general that we had back in the, the late 80s, early 90s. But we've clearly had an increase in our homicides uh, and both the numbers and the rates. And when you break down what are the causes, right? You know, is it strangulation? Is it stabbing? There's even a data set out there for defenestration of people being thrown out of a window. Um, it's predominantly firearms uh, that ha have led this substantial increase in homicides in the U.S. that we've seen over the past few years. Are you, I'm sure the alarm bells are ringing in your field. Are, are they Are they almost instantly attributing that to pandemic-related stress? Uh you know, if it was only one thing, we probably would have fixed it by now, right? Uh, and that's sort of my, my meta soundbite, right? If, if we could explain all of this thing in a soundbite, then we would have fixed it a long time ago. It, it's it's very good. It's got a lot of moving pieces, a lot of moving parts. And, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Stephanie Lada, who's a forensic psychologist in Connecticut, she, she says, you know, be, beware of the shiny object that we sort of latch on. We want that simple explanation. Um, and I get it, right? This is bad, scary stuff that we're talking about. And we want to feel the comfort of saying, ah, we can put a quick fix on this. We can correct it. And boom, the numbers will go down. It'll be safe to be in our communities. It'll be safe for our kids. It'll be safe to, you know, go to a parade or to go to a movie theater. It'll be safe to go to school. Um, but there, there's no quick fixes uh, on this, unfortunately. Well, uh, and, and speaking of a, an entity that wants quick fixes or wants the, uh, the two-minute soundbite is the popular media. You, you share some ire toward the popular media, how they cover mass shootings. Talk about your thoughts on, on all of that. So the good news is I think media has gotten better uh, at, at this broadly over the past decade or so. We, we've known for some time that there's a few things that happen with media coverage um, especially as often media coverage around gun violence gets anchored to a couple of basic storylines. There is the tragic mass shooting, and, you know, media teams converge on that location, uh, and they focus on that story intensely for, you know, 12 hours, sometimes 12 days until the next, you know, uh, event occurs. But a couple things happen with that, right? So, First of all, it puts the idea into all of us uh, who, who listen to media, um, including our policymakers, that the big thing with violence in America is mass shootings. And as I've said before, maybe one or two percent. And certainly I would love to not have that one or two percent. Uh, but we've got to worry about the other, you know, 98, 99 percent of, of violence in our country. Right. Um, it's profoundly stigmatizing to people living with mental illness because much of the narrative is that person they must have had it must have been mental illness and we, we hear the language sometimes explicitly sometimes in veiled epithets of you know whatever sort of from they're demented they're delusional and blah 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 and the reality is that most of the people engaged in those types of high profile violence most of the people engaged in violence in general uh don't they aren't doing it because of mental illness most people with mental illness are not violent, not towards themselves, not towards anyone else, not today, not tomorrow. Uh, in fact, people living with psychiatric illness are far more likely to be a victim than to be a perpetrator of violence. And, and people lose, lose sight of that. And unfortunately, the, the, the media cycles perpetuate some of that. Um, it also means people are afraid of the wrong stuff. Uh, and people are focusing their policy interventions on 
the wrong stuff, right? If if we focus all of our public policy interventions on preventing mass violence, again, that'd be wonderful, but it's dedicating a lot of very finite resources on a small part of a really big, complex problem. What, right? why, do you, why do you feel, though, that this is... This is the thing that gets all the attention. I mean, uh, you don't see. I, I mean, there's there's sixteen sh- there's sixteen fatal shootings in Chicago every weekend, and it just it just seems to be part and parcel of of life in in the major city. I, it, it feels like there's absolutely no movement to cure that. Yeah, you know, it's why media chooses to cover you know one story over the other. Uh, you know, is as complex of every other element of it. You know, what's what's the old aphorism? If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. And you can, you know, send the news crew out to, you know, whatever unfortunate town and focus on that issue for, you know, a day or two and then move on to the next story. And you don't have to unravel the fact that, hey, these are complex lives and complex stories that lead to this. You know, and here's the other thing with some of the, the media coverage, especially of the mass shootings. Um, we know that there is almost a copycat effect associated with mass violence. There's a reason why um, we hear about more of these stories in short periods of time, right? They, they, they cluster together in time. We've got uh, a handful of research studies out there, and not all of them, but, but most of the research out there says, hey, if you have one high-profile mass violent event, you're more likely to see other similar events in, in a relatively short cycle. And part of this is that they're actually occurring more frequently, and part of the is also that in the mind of your news editor uh, who's thinking about sort of, hey, what, what are we going to cover next? Hey, we just had this story, you know, like things cluster together. And, and so there's an attention variable as well. But in fact, they do occur more frequently. We also know that people who engage in, in violence often have idolized uh, past perpetrators uh, of these events. So, you know, a lot of what we talk about is, you know, don't name them, don't show them unless there's they're out at large in the community and they're still searching for them. Otherwise, you know, we, we don't want to glamorize no notoriety, you know, is the hashtag that goes around on this. So I think we've gotten better at not naming and showing the perpetrators of this. And part of this is also a, a tactical mimicry, if you will. Right. Yeah. They look at tragic events and said, Oh, this person, they, you know, did a, B and C to engage in this terrible attack. And, a and B worked really well, C didn't work, so I'm going to do A and B, but instead of C, I'll do D. Uh, and we can actually see very clearly in, in a lot of these attacks, uh, either by the operational things that these assailants are doing, or even through their own journaling and writing and communications, how they said, hey, I looked at these prior attacks, and this is, I'm imitating this assailant or these techniques for, for various and some reasons. So that's also why we really say, you know, no notoriety. Talk about the lives of the survivors, uh, the first responders, the, the, the hopefully the pe- people who heroically intervened, um, you know, all of which makes, frankly, I think for some pretty compelling news coverage. Um, you know, a few years ago, um, you know, there were a couple of tragic events and, and three newsrooms across the country shared got Pulitzers uh, for coverage of tragic shootings in 2018, uh, including the Capital Gazette news team in Maryland who had uh, a shooting at, at their own office space, their own writers and team, they did, um, you know, newspapers in Florida, you know, uh, uh, newspapers here in P- uh, Pittsburgh after the Tree of Life shooting got Pulitzers because of good coverage focusing on the lives that were impacted, the lives that 
were not lost. And let's be clear about this because sometimes they say, oh, they were lost to gun violence. No, they were taken. They were killed, right? You know, you, you lose your wallet uh, when you can't find it on the dresser in the morning. Uh, these people were actively killed. Uh, and, and that language matters here. But at the same time, we, we don't want to glorify the assailants uh, or, or uh, sometimes the ideology that they stand for if there is an ideology. Doc, let, let's keep going with our questions here. Uh, you did you did refer to this in the first segment there that uh, in your research you have it is estimated only four percent of criminal violence can be reasonably attributed to mentally ill uh, individuals. That means even if all the association between mental illness and violence would somehow be eliminated, we'd still have to confront ninety six percent of the violence in the U.S. Yeah. He, uh, there is this there is this magic wand thinking out there that if we can just diagnose and intervene on all mental illness or all violent, quote, uh, foreshadowing red flags, we would nail it. Absolutely. Right. You know, and, and you hear this a lot like, oh, it's got to be about mental illness. We've got to fix the mental health system. And by the way, our, our mental health system has got ample room for improvement. Uh, but our mental health system is not necessarily that much worse than any of the other economically developed countries, whether it's Canada or countries, you know, across Europe or Australia, uh, all the, all the programs are, are struggling, right? Uh, there's something distinct about what's happening here in the United States with our, our rates of, of gun violence. And, and it's a lot of factors that go into that. Uh, you know, the, the study you cited uh, by a colleague of mine, Dr. Swanson, who's now down at Duke, uh, is sort of one of these classic studies. And he, he really got, dove into the, the details of what's leading to violent behavior and it's just it's not just is a person living with mental illness and engaging in violence but are is someone engaging in violence because of the mental illness right the the numbers you'll often hear cited is you know maybe one in five or one in four people are living with a mental illness but that's actually right now living with a mental illness when we look at uh you know sort of the lifetime likelihood of someone developing uh, psychiatric illness. By the time you get to be my age, you know, middle-aged guy, uh, you know, recently turned 49, I can no longer claim to be in my early 40s. Uh, but um, by the time someone reaches my age, most Americans have met criteria for at least one psychiatric diagnosis. Uh, it's not those people with mental illness. It's all of us have are, are, are living with something probably, or most of us, uh, maybe not all of us, but certainly most of us are, are going to deal with something at some point. And again, most of the time, it does not lead to, to violent behavior. Um, I would love it if there was magical pixie dust that came out of the sky or some magical uh, bolus of funding that would help us identify and treat and manage all the psychiatric illness that, that's out there uh, more effectively. But it won't move the dial much for violence. It'll move the dial a little bit. And again, boy, just to move it a couple percent uh, with a problem as complex as this is, is a wonderful accomplishment. But we got to look at other factors as well beyond psychiatric illness. Oh, I but there you you have to admit that in this in this uh, rash of violent uh, situations in recent weeks the these uh, these people were not afraid to talk about their violent intentions the the, the fellow in New York that shot up uh, the tops uh, just 90 miles from where we sit here in Erie uh, he was on a red flag list in New York state yeah what, what do you and, and what and what is the deal with males exactly too? With all so, this? this is what we'll, we'll say about mass violence. Profiling doesn't work, uh, and for violence in general, profiling doesn't work. You, you can't look at some segment of the population as it's those people uh, that are going to be at risk. But by the way, at the end of the day, uh, especially when we look at 
violence in general and homicides and, and, and mass violence. It's far more likely to be uh, male uh, than, than female uh, or non, non-binary. But also, there are female and non-binary mass killers out there, right? It, it, it's, it's not unique to male. And so if I'm going out there and trying to prevent these kinds of things, I will not be well served by focusing on one demographic group. Our, our approach is often to say, instead, let's say, let's look for some of those more specific warning signs, such as social media postings indicating that they might want to engage in violence, right? Think about the tragedy at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, down in Florida back in 2018. You know, that assailant had posted on social media statements as explicit as, I'm going to be a professional school shooter, right? That's that's what the law enforcement folks, they call that a clue, right? Uh, but... You know, this is the other part of it, right? We, one of the things I do is something called threat management. And the idea is how do we identify people who may be at risk and come up with ways to help them transition from that pathway to violence to a pathway to recovery, right? So we're not looking at them because of the color of their skin, their gender, how they relate to their God, who they fall in love with, et cetera. We're looking at them because they had a behavior or a communication that was very specific to violence. And one of the things we talk about in the field of threat management is you got to collect the dots before you can connect the dots, right? And the dots are all these little indicators of they posted on social media that they wanted to carry out an attack. They have a history of violence with, you know, that that target. They have, you know, all these other risk factors. And the, the tricky part is that there's no one dot that in and of itself is sufficient and necessary uh, to, to lead to violence. So we've got to look at the, this sort of pattern together. But part of this is that before you can even collect the dots, someone has to say, ooh, this is concerning, right? My, I just saw someone post something on social media, and it catches my attention. They have to recognize, hey, this is a concerning thing. And they have to feel like, hey, there's a safe person I can hand this, this information off to. You know, in Pennsylvania, we have the Safe to Say program, uh, you know, as one resource. But people have to say, hey, gosh, is there someone I can go to in the HR office at this school or somewhere else? who will safely handle this information and not go after in a punitive way against this person that I may care about quite, quite a bit uh, or maybe quite afraid of, right? So we got to work on culture. we got to work on people recognizing some of the warning signs. Then we got to work on putting it together. And then we got to work on sort of creative, constructive ways to help people at risk for violence find safer pathways, knowing that we may not be able to be great at predicting violence, but we can still be really good at preventing violence. If we look at the risk factors and what we can do to intervene, knowing that a lot of those risk factors, when we're helping with them, we're just, we're doing generally nice things, right? It, it's, we're not talking about tackle and shackle, handcuffing, arresting people, uh, putting them away. We're saying, like, hey, you know, they've got a housing crisis. Hey, they need a, a better access to, you know, social connection and relatedness, to the, you know, more community supports, maybe even mental health services or something else, right? It, it, it's about how do we creatively, compassionately help this person find a safer pathway. And it works for the mass violence situations, and it works quite well for that day-to-day, that that quotidian toll of violence that, that is rolling across the Commonwealth. I don't want to get too far in a rabbit trail, but there's this thinking, and I even have this thinking, that if if the Facebook algorithm can hear me say the words Cracker Jack and I see ads for Cracker Jack and other <laughs> snacks in my Facebook feed, then certainly Facebook could track somebody saying, boy, I want to shoot up a school today. And they claim that the AI is not there. 
Doc, what are you reading in your journals? Is the AI there? <laughs> uh, no, it isn't. Um, maybe someday. And I kind of hope it will be because we need that level of complex mathematical analysis to, better, to get a better grasp on this problem. It's targeted violence and, and violence in general. It's complex in both the colloquial sense of the term and the scientific sense of the term when we talk about complex dynamic or chaotic systems. And so we need some of these higher computational sciences to help us out. Here's the problem. Right, right now, the computational science isn't there. The algorithms that, that are coming out are pretty biased and they miss a lot of stuff. Uh, and so is it worth doing research? Absolutely. Would I rely on it right now? Absolutely not. Wow. Okay. Um, you you also mentioned this, I think, a bit in the first segment, in the first half hour. Uh, so would you say, as you look at it holistically, that an attempt to, uh, to uh, stem the tides of mass shootings, that policymakers are generally heading down a path that will have limited positive outcomes or limited outcomes to what they want to do here? You know, the way I think about this is, you know, and again, as someone who I've my little girl will be starting fourth grade, uh, you know, at the end of the summer. Uh, I absolutely want her to have a safe school. But guess what? Our schools are actually already pretty safe. Um, 98.5% of the firearm homicides of school-age children and adolescents in America happen outside of the school. We have reasonably safe schools, and I absolutely want her to continue to, continue to have a safe school. But she also needs, as does every other kid in the Commonwealth and kid in the country. They need safe homes and they need safe communities and safe places to go and play and safe ways to get from one to the other. Um, and, and, and that's the challenge. And, and turning the school into a fortress because of tragic events uh, that, again, sort of hit the national news cycle, um, don't necessarily fix the rest of the burden of violence that's out there. So we want to find policy tools that work well across scale, if you will, that, that, that can help us reduce those terrible school shooting events, but also help us reduce the violence, the rest of the violence that's out there. Let's uh, let, let's go to uh, something that you mentioned in in your paper from 2017. Uh, is in your opinion, is there any correlation to sub- significant substance abuse, even recreational marijuana, and this propensity to to be a mass shooter or act out in violence? Well, for mass shooting. It, data points all over the place on this. Okay. Um, we, we've seen some assailants who have escalating substance use as they approach the time uh, of an attack. We've also seen a lot of them who have sharply decreased substance use, um, very intentionally saying, you know what, I am going to do this and I want to be clear and present uh, for, for when it happens. Um, when we look at community violence uh, and writ large, substance use and uh, more specifically Current or recent intoxication is one of our biggest risk factors wow. for violent behavior, um, and it, it 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 applies whether or not a person is also living with mental illness. But you put serious mental illness with substance intoxication, and, and you get you know even worse outcomes. But again, most of the violence not does not tie back to mental illness. But substance use is a, a big confounder. Marijuana, eh, you know, it's. The short answer on this is I, I don't think it's anywhere near as dangerous or as safe. Uh, as people on either end uh, of the rhetoric uh, claim that it is. Um, yeah, there probably are a certain number of people engaged in violence or, or mass violence 
uh, who, who do so well intoxicated on marijuana. Uh, but there's also, there's a lot of people out there intoxicated on marijuana these days. Um, and just because it's occurring at the same time doesn't mean that it's occurring because of that. And just like with mental illness, you know, are they engaging in violence because of the intoxication or, or because of the mental illness or despite the intoxication or the mental illness? Uh, but at the end of the day, generally, frequent intoxication uh, is, is not a protective factor against violence. Uh, but it's also, again, worth noting, it's a huge risk factor for being a victim of violence. Uh, when we look at people showing up in ERs after serious assaults, when we look at the toxicology results of the homicide victims that show up at the medical examiner's office, uh, having substances on board, unfortunately, is a real big risk factor for that. Wow. Let's talk about other uh, some psychosocial risk factors. You mentioned domestic violence in your research. Uh, that might be a strong influence of whether an individual will present violent behaviors. Again, this is kind of, uh, I mean... There is a lot of research going back decades about, you know, a sexual predator was sexually abused and, and so on. Is this along those kind of same pathways or? Sort of, right? So the, the old adage was hurt people hurt people. Uh, the idea that if someone has been violently victimized, they're more likely to violently victimize other people. Uh, I, I heard a wonderful reframe of this recently, and it was a violence interrupter out in Philadelphia. And uh, I'm just I'm so frustrated that I can't remember her name because. You know, I, I want to elevate her for this. And she says, you know, hurt people actually are the ones who are most uniquely well positioned to help other hurt people. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you, you know, from a scientific perspective, you look at the research and you say, OK, you take a thousand people uh, who were exposed to violence in childhood. They witnessed domestic violence at home. And, yeah, technically, the people in that group do have an elevated rate of engaging in violence as they go through the rest of their lives. But also, there's no shortage of people in that group. Again, the vast majority won't engage in violence. I can tell you, you know, almost every day I speak to someone who says, I saw what my dad did to my mom. Uh, I would never do that to another human being, right? You know, it, it actually, for those individuals, it's not only is it not a risk factor, it's their biggest protective factor. And not wow. that I would ever wish that experience on anyone. Uh, but it's always that individualized assessment rather than trying to say, hey, you know, let's look at this broader population. How do I look at that one individual who's in front of me in the eval room or who's had that concerning behavior that's, you know, r raised a flag and, and brought them to the attention of folks trying to prevent violence? Wow. Wow. All right. I'm going to pivot here because we're, we're down to our last 10 minutes or so uh, with uh, Dr. Jack Rizal. Um You have a, a unique understanding as a physician on American culture and guns. Share your take on that, if you could. <laughs> so I'll, I'll preface this by saying, you know, I, I'm a psychiatrist uh, who's become a bit of a gun nerd uh, over the years. You know, I, I did not grow up in a gun-owning household. Uh, but actually, about 20 years ago, I struck up a friendship with someone who was a, a self-described, uh, we'll just say, gun enthusiast. And uh, she took me to the range and said, hey, you know, this is, you know, A, this is not, not as scary as I thought it was going to be. And it you know, I work a lot with the gun-owning community, and one of the first things I'll say is it's not just one gun culture in America. Uh, gun owners are every bit as diverse as any other sort of sub-segmentation, and uh, most firearm owners are, are safe and responsible and passionate about reducing firearm violence in the communities um, and, you know, are, are have the same enthusiasm about you know, trying to take reasonable measures to make sure that they can be safe with the firearms that are, are part of their values, their, their you know, what's important to their family. 
um, and try to figure out how do we make sure that it's safer in general. There's some people at both extremes that have ideas that just aren't evidence-backed about what we can do to reduce gun violence, right? It, it's, you know, more guns aren't going to fix it. And imagining that all the guns are going to be magically, you know, evaporated because of, you know, consensus from the politicians doesn't seem like a reasonable pathway either. Uh, but maybe I've missed something in the recent news, right? Well, yeah, I think you're, <laughs> I think you're definitely on to something here. All right. I'm going to have to, we're going to go uh, kind of uh, put the pedal to the metal here. So uh, you prescribed multiple real world solutions that could work. So if, if policymakers are off track or at least only nibbling at what could be, uh, you know, a missed opportunity, if you will. Uh, let's go through your suggested tactics or policies. I found these quite uh, quite interesting, uh, and I'm going to start reading them off and have you uh, comment on each one. Yeah. E- expanded funding streams for well-designed objective, objective research on firearm violence and violence prevention. You're saying there's not enough data out there. So there, there's a lot of data, and yet compared to other major causes of injury and death in the United States, um, we, we don't compare. Uh, you know, th- there's some research out there that basically says we're, we're about, we're about, we're funding about 5% of the research that we should be funding on firearm injury prevention uh, compared to, you know, relative costs and impacts of, of other major uh, issues. And not only that, if we brought it to 100% today, we still have now probably 20 to 25 years of catch-up work to do. Wow. Now, by the way, there's a lot of great research out there that we should be following, uh, but the opportunities to fund good research uh, to, to help us find good ways to reduce this, it's something that I'm pretty passionate about. And a lot of people uh, across the spectrum uh, on this question are, are very passionate about. Here, here's one that I could totally get behind. Promotion of safer storage as a standard goal. I feel like if you're going to take the Second, Second Amendment right, you need to take the responsibility of being a safe gun owner. Yeah, you know, and, and I use the phrase safer storage, uh, much like our colleagues in reproductive health care. They talk about safer sex. There's always going to be some risk if there's going to be a gun around. But what can we do to make sure that that gun owner, uh, you know, is, is as safe as they reasonably can be while having the gun for whatever they want the gun for, whether it's whether they're a hunter, whether it's for personal safety or something else. But basic things like, hey, if you've got a, a kid or an adolescent in the home, how do we make sure that it's tougher for them to get access to that gun? You know, putting a lock on it, storing the ammo separately makes a big difference. Uh, if there's someone in crisis in that household, uh, making sure that, again, the gun is stored more, more safely. Again, knowing that, you know, I've seen people breach, you know, $4,000 gun safes, uh, you know, the, the, where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, but if it slows them down, it can make a world of difference sometimes. Yeah, your next one, it kind of refers to that assessment of firearm access and effective counseling about risk as a standard of care. If you're if you're a parent that's worried about your kid and you ha- you are a gun owner, you would really need to 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 really think about this. And, and there's a couple layers to this. So part of it is like when my kid goes over to play at someone else's house, how do I delicately have that conversation of hey, you know, my kid, she's really curious. She gets into lots of stuff. Uh, you know, can can I just ask? You know, or, or do you store? You know, do you keep your firearms? You know, locked locked up and out of access of kids if they come over. Uh, you know, how do we do that in a non judgmental way? How do I, as a physician, have that conversation with a, a family uh, or a patient in crisis um, in a way that's respectful? And it turns out, you know, sort of wagging my finger and saying, 
you're not a gun owner, are you? <laughs> it's a great way to end the conversation right there. Wow. Uh, right? Wow. You know, it turns out, no one ever shows up at a crisis center saying, my crisis is that I want the doctor to judge me negatively for values that are actually really important to me and my family. So how we have that conversation is important. And we know that if we approach it in a respectful, thoughtful manner, uh, that people are mostly very open to having a discussion about this. This this puts the onus on the clinician here. Development and distribution of evidence-based education on effective firearm safety counseling practices for clinicians. You really you really turned my ear on this one, Doc. Yeah, right. So again, how do we teach our colleagues in the field to have those those good, effective conversations? You know, one of the things I got to do a few years ago is I'm on the governor's special council on gun violence, uh, where the idea is we bring a bunch of subject matter experts together for a consensus. Uh, that included uh, representatives or a representative and a senator uh, from both parties, from, from both houses here, here in the state. And, well, you know, one of the things we did come to consensus on is how do we teach healthcare professionals to be more effective in counseling about safety? Again, understanding that this is Pennsylvania. You know, we, we're, we're gun-owning folk here. Um, and finding the right time to have the conversation, um, is important because, you know, if I'm going in for you know, a blood pressure check and I don't want to feel like someone's riding me about guns because a lot yeah. of people understandably feel like, Hey, you're, you're stigmatizing me because that's the last thing we want to do to someone coming to us for, for care or treatment for anything, uh, is, is to stigmatize them or make them feel like they're being stigmatized. Here's another one. Evidence-based education on effective firearm safety practices for gun owners and family members of persons with mental illness. We kind of referred to that yeah. a little bit earlier there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, we have some good research about sort of what people do and don't learn uh, when they go through some of those gun safety uh, courses. And there's not necessarily a lot of training about the fact that the person who's most likely to get killed by a firearm brought into the home, it, it, it's a suicide. That's the most likely wow. lethal outcome. Um, and again, and, this is all about reducing GSWs. If we can re- reduce yes. all gunshot wounds, no matter where uh, what the context was. And at the same time, knowing that most gun owners are safe and responsible. Yeah. Uh, and the vast majority of guns are owned and used safely and responsibly, or at least luckily, uh, <laughs> at the very least. Um, and for all the guns that are out there, for all the gun owners that are out there, oh, there's only a small subset of firearm entries, but it's still a significant public health concern. Here's one that is quite interesting as well. Uh, development of evidence-based education on effective firearm safety practices and on recognizing mental illness and acute mental health emergencies for firearm dealers. Uh, I would imagine that would turn some heads. Yeah, and but you know what? The firearm dealers I've worked with on this are really eager for this. Uh, a dear friend of mine who, who had a, a wonderful gun shop uh, in range said, hey, you know what, Jack, I'm really good at teaching my staff how to sell a gun, and I need someone to come in and teach them how not to sell a gun, right? Um, when someone's coming in and might obviously be in crisis, how do we recognize that? How do we get them to the kind of services? Because I, I've yet to meet a, a gun dealer um, who doesn't dread, you know, when they see some news report thinking oh please don't let it be someone i sold that to right wow wow i'm thinking of again the kid who turns 18 immediately goes and and gets a gun so he can shoot up tops you know uh that that that's just one more kind of uh layer to be able to to, you know to, to solve this issue and again 
like you say, it's not just the mass shootings, it's everything else. Yeah. Establishment of gun safety counseling as part of core continuing educational requirements for licensed practitioners. So you got to tell me, uh, <laughs> you know, for that for that basic social worker getting that MSW, how often do they talk about guns at these schools? So I'll tell you, when, when I was in med school, uh, I, I did an assessment on someone and I presented it to the senior physician. And he said, uh, do they have any guns in the home? And I said, I don't know. And he says, well, go back in there, ask them if they have any guns in the home. And if they say yes, uh, then tell them to get rid of the guns. And that was the, the sum total of training and education I had on how to talk to people about firearm safety throughout my medical education and residency. And it, it was about the same content and, and detail that goes into my Starbucks order every morning. Oh, my and word. And I can tell you. There's a little bit more to it, and, and we're starting to learn in our field how to have the conversations and how to teach people to do that. And, and you know, nationwide, we're starting to roll out some really good tools around this. Do, do you get pushback from those in in social work and in mental health that say, no, 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 you know, we 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 want a, a stiffer, you know, policy than this? Well. <laughs> right now, there's there's a bunch of licensed healthcare professionals listening to your show saying, "What do you mean I got to do more continuing education?" <laughs> right, right, there you right go. We're, we're less than happy with me for saying that. And I, I know the medical societies and professional societies are, aren't big fans of that either, and I get it. There's there is a cost and burden to that, um, but I think that's also a more achievable uh, outcome than imagining that our legislators are, are going to shift the landscape more broadly. Uh, and then we've got to take some ownership as healthcare professionals, uh, knowing that, again, we have, we have constitutional protections for firearm ownership at a federal level and at a state level. Um, and we have probably approaching half a billion firearms uh, in the U.S. And, you know, we've got to figure out how to be thoughtful and effective at helping all of these gun owners in America be safer uh, with the guns that they have. Yeah, it's not going to be some kind of utopia that uh, that you've always been yearning about. This is the reality that we're living in, yeah. just like every other reality. All right, I've got. I, I want you to spend a little bit of time on this one: establishment of national best practices guidelines on evaluation for expungement. Uh, can you unpack that for us? Yeah. yeah. So. If I get 302, if I get involuntarily psychiatrically committed here in Pennsylvania, um, then my name goes into a, a, a database with the state police. Uh, so that if I go to a gun dealer and I, I fill out that paperwork, um, it, I, I will ping in the record system as not being allowed to purchase a firearm. Um, and it's an all or nothing kind of a pathway. There, there's some very limited pathways to, um, to, to, to restore farm rights, but they're very limited and frankly, they're kind of expensive. And, and, alter, and that I think makes it very stigmatizing and very aversive for people to think about psychiatric intervention and certainly involuntary uh, interventions. And we want to make things as voluntary and sort of fluid as possible. And there are some people who are in the throes of an acute psychiatric illness who are very, very dangerous at that time. And then they sort of go through the crisis and, uh, you know, things change and, and the permanent prohibition of, you know, Second Amendment rights um, oftentimes doesn't make sense. And there's not a lot of consistency uh, in how those rights are reversed. Uh, 
due to a lot of complex legal things that apply to the state of Pennsylvania, the Third Circuit, which is the federal court system over Pennsylvania, but also, you know, sort of state to state variation. Um, and, and, you know, we want to be thoughtful about firearm entry. And uh, the part of me that went to law school says we've got to be thoughtful about our legal rights. Okay. I, I'm going to go quickly here. Uh, improve legal tools for temporary removal and safe storage of firearms during periods of crisis, kind of like you were saying, this intervention thing. Yeah. So there's a wonderful group uh, that's actually based out in eastern Pennsylvania, although they have national impact, called Hold My Guns, holdmyguns.org. And they're putting together a, a network of uh, usually gun dealers who will voluntarily temporarily hold on to a firearm, right? So if I'm going through crisis or maybe, you know, I'm about to have a family reunion with, you know, 27 sugar hyped up kids running around the household, you know, is there a safer way for me to store my firearms? Can I can't drop them off at the gun dealer for a few days. And so that would be a voluntary approach. Or how do we craft these extreme risk protective orders or quote unquote red flag laws uh, in a way that, that are effective and constructive um, and also have that careful judicial review to begin recognizing that there are serious rights that, that, that we're, we're working with and not, not to be abridged capriciously. Less than th- uh, 60 seconds here. Exclusion of firearms from bars and other areas where alcohol or substance abuse is common or expected. And the final one is clear media reporting guidelines for major violent events. We kind of talked about that earlier. Yeah. I got I got 30 seconds, Doc. Um, do you feel like we can make uh, positive moves in, in, in more holistic approach to this situation? I absolutely. You know, I, I wouldn't be in this space if I didn't. Uh, the number of smart, passionate, committed people working to reduce firearm entry, uh, both in the field of healthcare, the field of uh, firearms, you know, and, and, and sporting and, and sort of across the board. Um, there's a lot of people who are really passionate about this and are putting their shoulder to the grindstone. We got to leave it there. Dr. Jack Rosell, Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Adjunct Professor of Law, University of Pittsburgh. Thank you so much for your generosity and time and expertise, sir. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com.